Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Good morning. In just a few moments, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Go ahead and make your way there. And uh, we're in the sermon series on, on uh, finding, discovering, seeking, and desiring God's will, and how do we know it, and uh, why do we want it. This is a question that's been asked for millennia, and, and uh, in fact, from the very beginning when, when we come into contact with our Creator, there is this, this uh, desire immediately to want what God wants for us, to be in a relationship with Him, a close communion with Him, and, and, uh, and to become one with His, with His presence. Uh, it's not something that we desire, it's something that is, is created, and, and the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity into our hearts, and so even before we knew God, there was a part of our DNA that that craved uh, the eternal. And so when, once we start knowing what that eternal looks like, and, and certainly once we say yes to God and we receive the Holy Spirit, uh, there starts to be the Spirit working in us and perfecting us begins to, to, to desire and long for more and more of a relationship with, with God. And so what, what is it that produces communion with God? How, how can we be satisfied with our relationship with, with God? What produces intimacy with Him and closeness of presence with Him where, where we don't just have the open Word of God, but we actually can sense what God is desiring for us and we desire what He desires for us? What produces the knowledge of God and the assurance that the things we say yes to are the things He wants for us. And, and so all Christians, I want you, uh, I, know, I know that I said 1 Thessalonians, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, I want us to read that together because it is, I want you to hear it uh, and see it. If you can, I want you to see it very closely. Because one of the things that the Lord is teaching me, in, uh, and I'm seeing it everywhere now, is, is who we already are in Christ. And, and I'm a, I'm, I think that most Christians, I don't remember being taught this, uh, but, but somewhere or another, it's just got into our DNA uh, over the course of generations that we're like we're waiting on something else to come. Like there's some second work of grace or some additional act that's going to that's gonna come to us, uh, you know, that God's going to maybe even, I don't want to say overpower us to give us more of Himself, but there's, there's like this, if I'm faithful for a while, God's going to, you, you know, when you're on a roller coaster and you go click, 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 you know, if the power goes out, you only, you only go back to the previous click, right? That's a great mechanism for those who are afraid of roller coasters. But the, the, our relationship with the Father doesn't quite work that way. It's not a click, 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 and, you know, them... If something happens bad, well, I've at least arrived at this level and I won't go back any further than that. Uh, and, and I'm just going to keep experiencing more and more and more of the Lord the more I walk with Him. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible does teach is that when we say yes to Jesus Christ, we get everything right there, right then and there that we're ever going to get. Every tool, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. We have every capacity to say yes to every question God asks of us. Everything He desires of us is already in us. 
Paul teaches this on every page, that, that the, who we used to be isn't who we are now. I am, I, John the Baptist even said, I must decrease, he must increase. Of course, we know that to be true. But this is the essence of what Paul was talking about when he said, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. This is a present reality, not something we long for, for God to manifest more and more. But what we need to do is learn how to surrender today so that it can become a reality in our day. Uh, does this make sense? So over and over, Paul tells us to quit acting like mere men because that's not who we are, that, that we have already received resurrection power. And Romans chapter 8 uh, is a good illustration of this. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the verse where Paul said to take out the old leaven and become a new lump, which you already are. I mean, he's, this is already true of you. You just aren't living in it yet. And I think as a pastor, the Lord is teaching me that the number one goal of the, of the Christian life is not just to desire more of God or to learn more facts and information so that we can have more tools available to us. But truly, the goal of the Christian life is to constantly remember who we already are. To constantly remember our new identity. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, You, however, writing to the Roman church... You, however, are not in the flesh. Not in the flesh says that you're not going to be in the flesh or you shouldn't desire the flesh. He's actually telling them where they are positioned spiritually. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You're already there. In fact, he goes further to explain, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. It is that simple. If you are not fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. That's what Paul says. You are not in the flesh anymore. You are in the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, you don't belong to Him. Which also says that if you do have the Spirit of Christ, you do belong to Him. Fully. Paul says an amazing thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. You know the passage of Scripture uh, already, but he says, Your body, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right? Your body, and, and by the way, it compounds the clarity when you realize that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. These guys couldn't get anything right. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting too, because if you look at the Greek word temple, I think a lot of times we already know what the temple is. You know, it's the place where Israel would go and worship and, and, and the, the early church would go and pray. So we said the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's, that makes for a good story and, and it is absolutely true. But the word neos is the Greek word, which is not just the temple. It, it is a reflection back on the the Old Testament temple, which isn't the court of the Gentiles, the court of the, the world, the, the nations, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Jews, the court of the women. It doesn't include all of that. This word, this specific word, is the holy place. 
This is where the cloud, this is where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. So when he says, do you not know that you are the temple? He's talking about the inner chamber of the temple. I mean, the very place where you used to couldn't go. Only the high priest could go once a year. And then if he had favor. That's where the holy, you are the embodiment of the very presence of God. Do you not know that? Why do you keep living like mere men? So what we need to learn then is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does the Scripture say about being filled with the Spirit? And so last week I kind of ended here. And so for those of you who were here last week, I'm going to ask you to be just a little bit patient because you're going to hear a couple of things that you've already heard. But I felt like I was pretty rushed last week and I didn't really, I didn't end the way I wanted to. Uh, not because of any pressure, I just I, I felt... I felt like there was more that wasn't given. And so I want to kind of go back over that again. This word feeling, and this is Ephesians chapter 5. I know I said 1 Thessalonians 4. That was just to kind of get you engaged. Uh, it, it has no power here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says, Don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled dissipation, which be filled with the Spirit. And so the comparison there is living like the world versus being filled with the Spirit. And we talked about that. I'm not going to go back and teach that passage of Scripture. But that word feeling, and I mentioned it last week, is the word plerao. Okay, it's a very interesting word. It's found actually 90 times in just the New Testament alone. It's found a lot in the Gospels. It's found many times in Paul's writing. And it always means the same thing. And so it's important for us, not for me just to give you a definition, but to give you the context of just a few of these so we can see the consistency of how the gospel writers use this word. In fact, every time that you see Jesus fulfilling a prophecy, either by his actions, his miracles, his teaching, you know, a lot of times the gospel writers would say Jesus did this or said this or, or acted in this way to fulfill this certain prophecy. That's the same word, plerao, is when Jesus brings things to a final Closure, conclusion, and, and uh, uh, completion, in other words. In John chapter 16, verse 6, it says that sorrow filled their heart. Uh, now that's talking about sorrow dominating a person. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, it says they were filled with madness. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's pretty obvious what that means. In Luke chapter 4, verse 28, it says, filled with anger. Luke 5, 26, filled with fear. And in each one of these cases, what this word filled means or plerao means, it indicates a dominating emotion. And when I say a dominating emotion, I don't mean just one that has a lot of power, not one that wins the battle. I'm talking about dominating as in there is no room for any other emotion. That's what the word means. There is no room. So when Jesus fulfilled a prophecy, there is no room for doubt that Jesus is the one it was talking about. When you are filled with sorrow, it simply means that there is no room for joy. When you are filled with madness, there is no room for sanity. When you are filled with fear, there is no room for faith. And so it's this balancing act. And most of us try to live our lives out this way in the flesh. And I'm talking about just typical people who, who kick around every day. I'm not talking about people who are born again. We try our best to live within this balance, right? I mean, we all have people who pass away, people who die. And there are times where grief takes hold of us and starts moving us toward this slippery road of desperation. And, and, and there are things, there are people in our life that when we start really slipping into this 
filled with sorrow that our friends will remind us of of other things, will remind us of other family, will remind us of the good times, the memories, the reasons to get up in the morning. And so when we're slipping toward being filled with sorrow, we kind of work hard and sometimes for months and years to try to balance back up and have a reason to get up in the morning. And when we're, we're filled with madness, we have this I've got to really seek things out and I've got to make sure that I'm right and I'm not, I'm not going crazy. I'm not going crazy because I know this is true. And we start working really hard to be balanced. And when we're angry, you know, we're getting ready to erupt and we remind ourselves of some things and we consider consequences. We bring ourselves back to some sort of balance. In fact, people who cannot live that way, we call them unbalanced. Right? And so this is very interesting that we live that way in the flesh, and it, it works in the flesh uh, for the most part. But sometimes in the spirit, we work the exact same way. And, and we try to live balanced. We, we strike a balance. And so we, and I'm not talking about anybody in here, uh, but we make some really good decisions, maybe even two or three days in a row. Two or three times we say yes to God, and we kind of give ourselves a little dropping of the guard because after all, you know, the Holy Spirit's over here, I'm over here. I say yes a few times, but he'll understand when I say no. And, and, and so, you know, when it comes to church attendance, you know, we're not as faithful as we used to be. We know that we ought to do better, but you know what? I've been two weeks in a row. And so I want to bring some balance. After all, we got to learn that these fuddy-duddy Christians, they can laugh too. So we want to bring some balance to, uh, to, our, to our life. Or, you know, I give a little bit. I don't have to be... We have stopped worrying or considering faithful living, and we've started considering how do we live in balance. And we're teaching our children to live their faith in balance. So if you don't go to church every week, just make sure you have Christian friends. Just make sure you, you know that, uh, you know, boy, it's so hard for me not to get preaching. Uh, but, I, but I'm going to do it. You know, when it comes to, uh, you know, preferring sports over church, uh, you know, when we say, well, it's a season in our life. It is. It's the formative season for your children. It's the season that they'll draw on when they're adults, and it won't be there for them to have it. But we live in balance. You know, we, we may not go to church all the time, but, you know, we're good people. And so we start striking, instead of faithfulness and obedience to Scripture, we start learning to strike this balance. Well, being filled with the Spirit says, we're not striking a balance anymore. We're all in. I have slipped beyond trying to be balanced in my life and trying to be a Christian and in the world that I am actually going to say I am filled with the Spirit, which means I no longer live, Christ lives within me. I am taking every thought captive unto Christ and I no longer live, He lives within me. I will deny myself daily and I will take up my cross and I will follow Him. I will, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who seeks to lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall find it. Do you see this constant over and over and over about being filled in this, with the Spirit? Being filled with the Spirit is being dominated by the words of Christ in the Scripture. That's what the word actually means. So if you go over to five, uh, chapter uh, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, and then 
and then going on, you start seeing how being filled with the Spirit, and then you start how you sing and you pray to each other, uh, praise, sing praise to each other and encourage each other with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And it affects your marriage. It affects your relationship with your children. It affects how you work. On and on and on, all the way to the end of chapter 6, we see how being filled with the Spirit affects your relationships. If you go to Colossians chapter 3, it almost is the exact same thing. Paul says, this is what it looks like to be a wife. This is what it looks like to be a husband. This is what it looks like to be a child. This is what it looks like to be a parent. This is what it looks like to be an employer. This is what it looks like to be an employee. This is what it looks like to live in society. So, instead of saying, be filled with the Spirit, and these are the results, he says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Which means that the words of Christ dwelling in us richly is exactly the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. It's incredibly clear in Scripture that being filled with the Spirit is being obedient to the teachings of Scripture. It's clear. I don't know how to be clearer. It means to be dominated, completed. No room for anything else in my life. Don't be filled with substitutes. Because when you're filled with substitutes, you'll start justifying things in your life. After all, I'm a pretty good person. God wouldn't mind if I... And when we start doing, we start justifying sinful behavior in our life. We would never say, yeah, I'm going to allow a little sin in my life. But we're not able to identify what is sin and what is not sin. So let's just draw a real clear line here. Sin is any area of our life where we miss the mark of God's choice. right? That's what the literal word means, sin, hamartia. It means means to miss the mark. And so when God says for us to be filled with the Spirit, it is God's will that we be filled with the Spirit. And if I choose at any given moment not to be filled with the Spirit, I'm missing the mark. Do you see that? So, so sin isn't about the things that we do. Sin is, also, is, is actually those decisions where we're choosing not to be filled with the Spirit or obedient to the Word of God as He has already revealed it to us. So when Jesus said that we must deny ourselves and follow Him, when Jesus said that, I am, I am in the flesh, right? I don't have... The Spirit. Pentecost hadn't come yet. I don't have the indwelling of the Spirit yet. So Jesus says, follow me. And so in the flesh, I'm following Jesus. And I'm scratching my head and I'm wondering, I'm questioning, I'm doubting, and I'm struggling, right? You look at the disciples, they're struggling. They don't, I mean, what does he mean when he says these things? We can't figure out anything, right? The commandment is still clear. They just didn't have the capacity to obey it. They're, they're, their physicality, their bodies could not inform their mind to be transformed. It doesn't work that way. So I can't live a certain way and develop a habit that will change my mind. It cannot work in reverse. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and He rejuvenates us, He makes us alive, we experience a second birth and we are born again, now my spirit can inform my mind and my mind can inform my actions. 
So in John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that anyone who knows and believes in me shall have eternal life. Now, God's will, the Father's will, is not that we know and believe Jesus. The Father's will is that we have eternal life. But the only way to have eternal life is by knowing and experiencing a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is God's will that we be saved. It's what Jesus says. It is the Father's will that we be saved by believing in Jesus Christ and then experience eternal life. So, I am saved in my spirit. My spirit is saved. In fact, the theological term for that is the word justification. And that term is actually found many times in Scripture. I am justified positionally. It's the same thing that Paul just said in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. This is who I am spiritually. I am saved. I am embodiment of the Spirit of Christ in my life. I have everything that Christ wants for me so that I may fulfill the Spirit of God, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. That's who I am. Once I experience this new life, this resurrection power of the Spirit, now it is God's will that this Spirit be filled in me continually. Here, this is the word sanctified. Believe it or not, the word sanctified comes... uh, We talk about being sanctified is actually the effect that occurs due to consecration. I know these are big words. These are Bible words, but and I realize sometimes they're kind of hard to process through. So in the Old Testament, God often would say to the children of Israel, consecrate yourselves before the Lord. And what that means is, the word actually means to set yourself aside for a holy purpose. Consecrate yourselves. Oftentimes that would come with a washing of clothes. So sometimes we tell our kids to consecrate themselves. Um, Come on, give me a little break there. So consecration takes place here where I recognize that I am set apart for a holy purpose. That's in my spirit. The effect of setting myself aside is the uh, uh, sanctification. Okay, It's the process of where my mind is becoming the mind of Christ. I have already become the spirit of Christ. I am becoming the mind of Christ, day by day. It is in my spirit that I am saved, but it is in my mind, it is in my soul, my emotions, my will, that I am being saved day by day. Sanctified, spirit-filled. If I'm not spirit-filled here, I cannot have the mind of Christ. These are such, such important parts of knowing where the war is taking place in our lives. All right? So, this is the will of God, your salvation. Your salvation begins to inform and filter into the way you think, the way you process. So now we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's super simple, folks. It really is super, super simple. And so, but, but I know one of the things that we will continue to hear is, I know, but I want to know what God's will is. I want to do something. I want to do God's will. But listen to me very closely. The doing comes as a byproduct. 
So if we're going to do something, we're going to do it in the flesh. And that's what we want to know. Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to work? What am I going to eat? What college am I going to attend? All of these sorts of things. I want to know what to do. What does God want me to do? But the knowledge doesn't come from the doing. The knowledge of God's will comes from the being. The doing is a byproduct of the being. So if you're not willing to be, you'll never know what to do. So the commitment must come before the knowledge. We must say yes to the Spirit long before we know what to do. In fact, there are still many, many times in our Christian life where we may not know what to do, but if we will just simply be obedient to what God has already revealed for us, we'll begin to accomplish God's will and not even be aware that there was an option. Because we're walking in the Spirit, we're living in the Spirit, we're breathing in the Spirit, we're processing in the Spirit because our minds are actually starting to be filtered over here. If you're not saved, if your spirit is not saved, you don't have the capacity for this. You can want to be a better person, you don't have the longevity, you don't have the sustaining power for that. That's why when you finish one self-help book, you've got to start another one. Because you don't have the, there's no sustaining power in it. The sustaining power comes from the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that's actually found in the Spirit. So if you're not saved, you don't have the capacity to be different. You'll never have the capacity to know God's will. It can't be known. It's secret. So I can't know the mind of Christ if I don't have the mind of Christ. I'll never be able to do the will of God if my mind is not wrapped around the will of God. You see how it works? It's, it's formulaic almost. All right. <clears throat> so God's will isn't found in doing, it's found in being. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now this is so practical. I'm going to start in verse 3. For this is the will of God. Well, that was easy, wasn't it? It's not such a mystery after all. For this is the will of God. What's the next thing it says? Your sanctification. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. It is the will of God that your mind live out the effects of the consecration that your spirit has already said yes to. If you say that you trust Jesus Christ, there is evidence of that by a renewed spirit. The evidence of that is I think differently and I process differently. Oh boy, here we go. What does it mean? Sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, holiness, purity, separateness from mental sin. Now, we say separate from sexual sin. Sexual sin actually occurs in the body. That's that's a flesh sin. That's a body sin. But he says your sanctification, which is what is taking place in your mind, in your soul, in your mental processes, in your emotion. You should say, how far am I supposed to keep myself from sexual sin? All the way from the body, from the body, all the way back to the spirit through the mind. That's how. How far am I supposed to keep myself sexually pure? 
all the way to the mental level. I mean, who among us does not truly know that every sin done in the body starts in the mind? But if you don't have a sanctified mind, you can't have a glorified body. But if you don't have a justified spirit, you can't have a sanctified mind. Do you want to know why you think about sexual sin all the time? Do you know why it's dominating in your mind? In fact, we think about it and we don't even know we're thinking about it. And maybe it's not even sexual. Maybe it's some other form of sin. You ever wonder why we think about it all the time? Because we are not being filled up where there are no other options in the Spirit. We allow the things we hear. I know, we watch things and we say, I'm really not affected by it. Really? You are so much better than Scripture. I know. Scripture's pretty clear, right? The things we listen to, the things we say, the friends that we keep, the images that we look at, all of these things constantly feeding from the flesh, feeding the mind. And we want to claim that we have a sanctified mind. No wonder we wake up in the morning and say, wonder what God wants for me. God, you just show me your will, I'll do it. I'll show you what's not my will that you keep doing. So this is the will of the Father for you. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. What's the greatest way to know that you're sanctified? The greatest way for you to know that your mind's different? By knowing that the way you think about your body and the body of everybody around you is different. The way you treat other people. The way you process other people. That's how you know you're thinking differently. And by the way, Paul wasn't married. So the negative is, stay away from sexual sin. Not just the actions. That's where we really give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Well, I didn't really act on it. Here's the test. Not the action. Here's the test. And I'll tell you, if you fail this test, you will eventually fail this test. Verse 4 gives us the positive. Not only does God want us to keep ourselves away from, not sex. Sex was actually God's idea. Sexual sin. But He also gives us the positive side, which is that each one of you know how to control his own body. Wait a minute. This is not that each one of you can control his own body. This is so that you can know how to control your own body. So when your mind is sanctified, you get to unlock secrets. Those who aren't sanctified can't know. So this is, this is where the secrets are unlocked, right here. That you may know how to use your bodies, how to honor your bodies. Not just so you can. You say, well, if God wanted me to stop, He'd stop me. It doesn't work that way, right? So the negative side is stay away from sexual sin. The positive side is, and if you will stay away from sexual sin, I'll let you use your bodies for my glory. Used to, I didn't have the capacity of that. Used to, before I was saved, the only capacity I had was to use my body for my glory. But now that my mind is informed by the Spirit indwelling in me all the time, I have some options. Now I am free to choose 
sanctification, holiness, purity, separateness. Used to, I didn't have the capacity to be able to do that. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, he's saying, don't live like people in the world. Don't justify like people in the world. Don't act like godless people. Don't get sucked up into the culture that tells you it's okay. It's your body. It's your choice. Don't get sucked up into that stuff. Here's how you live. Now, if Christ changed every culture and every generation, you don't get to say, what does it look like for me to live a Christian in my generation? You get to say, what does it look like for Christ to live? It's going to be the same everywhere because it's one spirit. It's one Christ. It's one salvation. That Christian life should look the same in every context. Does it determine on what a culture does with living together or homosexuality or any sort of other form of sexual sin? It's got to do with what does it look like to live like Christ here and now? Not all my other friends are doing it or if I just stop short of that, then it's not that. And then you want to know what God's will is? You can't behave like the world behaves and you can't justify your behavior because of everybody else around you. There's two forms of justification. You know, we, we, we give ourselves the benefit of doubt when we live in the flesh and we have informed our mind and we've told our minds, it's okay, After, let's retranslate these and make it fit our context, all this stuff. Listen, you can't, you can't justify that. You can't say, well, you know, once I get married... You can't say, once I find someone that I really love. You can't say, once I get serious or once I get older or, or, or after all the things that we've, it's mutual or all this sort of garbage that we tell ourselves and we justify sexual sin and we justify it. Well, let me tell you something. There's another form of justification that comes from the Spirit. And the Word of God says that we have been justified in Jesus Christ by His death on the cross. That's the justification we ought to be claiming, not the justification of the flesh. I'll tell you, it says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. Here's how you know if your justification is of the flesh or of the Spirit. Does it produce peace in your life? If you're living in sin and it creates guilt, that's proof that it's not from the, from the Spirit. I remember when I was in high school, I had a really good friend. She and I were lab partners and gotten pretty close with each other, and she would share things about her life with me. And she was dating a, a guy. We played ball together on a basketball team, and, and I remember just being vexed in my spirit when she would tell me how terrible she felt about the pressure he was putting on her, but she couldn't tell him about it. And I remember I was so angry about what he was doing to her, and she she couldn't didn't wouldn't say anything. And I remember going to him, and I said, "Do you not feel any?" Because he claimed to be a Christian. I'd say, you don't feel any guilt about this? You know what he said? Well, I used to. I used to. And he hung his head. And I thought, you, you, really what you should say is, you know what, I used to feel that, but man, I... Now he knew. Vexing him. But we're being informed by the body instead of by the spirit. Now, verse 6. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. In other words, what he says is, don't, uh, don't ever take advantage of another person sexually. Don't you dare cross that line, Christian. Don't take advantage of someone else. You are defrauding that person of their virtue, their holiness, and their purity. Don't do that. That's never God's will. You say, well, I, you know, it's mutual. Is it? How would you ever know? How would you ever know the pressure that you're putting on somebody? Don't you dare defraud somebody. It's not yours. Stay away from it. What is yours is your body. Give it to Jesus Christ, and you won't have to worry about fulfilling the desires of the flesh. So, that's God's will. We keep saying we want God's will. He says, be saved. Get started. Now you have tools. Be sanctified. Have your mind changed. Be empowered. Now you can form the flesh. Be sexually pure. That's how you can know for sure your body is being glorified to be like Christ. All starting in the mind. Have couples come, they want to talk about premarital counseling. I require six sessions of premarital counseling uh, before I even agree to marry a couple. But one of the rules is, and the scripture's pretty clear about, you know, qualifications for marriage and, you know, divorce and remarriage and, you know, all of those sorts of things. I'm not going to get into all of that today, but I've got a, a policy that I, that I keep. <clears throat> and one of those is, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the honor police. I mean, I'm not going to go do investigation on people's lives. I think that's silly. But from the time that I begin counseling with a couple to determine if marriage is, is for them, uh, my requirement as a pastor, because I think it is Scripture's requirement, is that couples can't live together or sleep together. And if, if we can keep that and honor that, then we will proceed. If we can't, wait a minute. If you can't be sexually pure, how could you possibly know that this person is God's will for you? You couldn't possibly know it because God hasn't revealed it. That's what His Word says. You can't know it because God hasn't revealed it because you're not even being obedient to the parts that He has revealed, let alone the secret parts. Why would we do this? Look at, again at verse 6. You should do this because the Lord is the avenger in all things. You want God's will or do you want God's trouble? Those are the choices. God's will, God's trouble. Now, I want to take a moment and say this. The reason I think that Paul uses sexual sin is because this is a, a real physical issue with humanity for the most part. It's an anomaly when it's not. And so I want to just say this. If there is sexual sin among us here, Scripture is very, very clear. If that's been something that's been a part of your life in the past and you have received Christ, or maybe you were a Christian and you were not living for Christ, or maybe even rebelling against Christ, I want you to know this. The goodness of God brings us back to a new mercy every morning and a new ability to make a new fresh commitment to be filled with the Spirit. Paul was writing to people who had made such mistakes even in their life of faith and he calls them to be filled with the Spirit. So if 
sin and debauchery and dissipation and all of these things have been a part of your life in the past, put a stop at the deeds done in the flesh and allow the Spirit of Christ to reign in you. This is called repentance. It's when we agree with God and we begin to walk with Him. Otherwise, all you're doing is delaying God's vengeance upon this. Pretending to be righteous. Pretending to be sanctified. Possibly even pretending to be justified. So there's hope and there's grace for those who have marred the Spirit of Christ's fullness in them already. But that grace gives us the responsibility to walk in obedience to the Word of God. So look at verse 7. Well, again in verse 6, he says, We told you this before. I mean, it's like, and we solemnly warned you. I mean, it's like, I've told you, I've told you, I've told you, I've told you, I've told you. And unfortunately, sexual sin is one of those sins that you have to be told over and over and over. You know, I was thinking about it. uh, You look at Scripture, every sin that's talked about in Scripture, Paul says, put it away, put it away, get rid of it, kill it, stop it, except sexual sin. Sexual sin, he says, flee it, flee from it. Run away from it, because it's always going to be there. It's never going to go away, folks. It never goes away. If you think you're going to outgrow it, if you're going to marry out of it, it doesn't work that way. It's always going to be there. You have to make a spiritual decision in your mind not to defile yourself. Look at verse 7. Because God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in, what is it? But in holiness, sanctification, purity. Say, don't judge me. You don't know. You're right. So let's look at verse 8. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit. You see, the will of God is that I be saved. Once I'm saved, my spirit informs my soul. My soul informs my body because it is so important. I I can tell you that I'm saved. How can you tell? If I say, yes, I believe in Jesus and I trust Jesus as my Savior, there's not like a light that pops on or ear that folds open. Oh, he's one of us now. I can even tell you all the right answers in my mind. I can have all of the solutions to all of the issues. I can quote scripture. I can speak theologically. I can go through all the motions and you can say, yep, he's one of us. But I can snow you. Let me tell you how you can't fake it. By the way you live your daily life in holiness, in purity, in separateness from the world. Daily, holy living. That's why it is so important for us to live holy in the flesh because it's proof that something else has taken place in the Spirit. And I'm telling you, this world with all of its brokenness, I feel like the church has lost most of its power because we have not revealed that redemption to it. Instead, we've struck a balance. How can I walk in my faith and still let the world know that I like them? How can I still have favor with the world and still be faithful to church? 
We're not called to strike a balance. We're called to be filled with the Spirit. For this is the will of God. The salvation of our souls, of our spirits, the consecration of our minds, the glorification of our bodies. Once we begin to put these things in place and live daily, moment by moment, that's when you'll start knowing what God wants you to do with the hidden areas of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and we thank you for your word this morning because it is so clear to us. I pray that it's clear to us. I pray that you would continue to teach us. So help us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Help us to be careful. Lord, this morning I pray for power for our church. I pray that we would not mystify being filled with the Spirit. I pray that we wouldn't reduce it to some emotionalism, but that we would put it where you put it, and that's level with moment by moment indwelling of the Spirit of God. And we thank you for that, Lord, this morning. And we have failed so miserably. We will fail. We know it. Lord, we do not set out to. So may your Spirit that abides in us prick our conscience. May our spirits be vexed, Lord, when we rebel against it. I do thank you for the free will to rebel because it makes obedience so much sweeter for your glory. So Lord, I pray that as we say yes to you, as we live holy, consecrated lives, as we walk around sanctified in this evil age, Lord, as our lives look differently from those around us that have not said yes to you yet, I pray that they would not see our good deeds and pat us on the back, that they would not see our good deeds and ask us for advice, but they would see our good deeds and they would glorify our Father in heaven. Lord, help us to be a holy people, a royal priesthood set apart in our day. Lord, help us to consecrate ourselves now and set our sides apart, ourselves apart for a sacred purpose. And may we, in the being, know how to do your will. But may it reveal you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.com. Dot CC.